April 19th, 2019 edition of On Iowa Politics. This week, collusion delusion, Loebsack retirement, and campaign money. Hi, I'm James Lynch with the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and with me today are Brett Hayworth with the Sioux City Journal. Good morning, Brett. Good morning. Ed Tibbetts of the Quad City Times. Good morning, Ed. Good morning, James. Thomas Nelson of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, James. And Gazette columnist Todd Dorman. Good morning, Todd. Good morning. You can find us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. First up, it's Mueller, Mueller, Mueller. No doubt everyone with even a casual interest in Trump, Russians, and collusion has been up the uh, past couple nights reading the Mueller report on collusion between the previously mentioned parties. Attorney General William Barr told us that the investigation found no collusion. But, Ed, um, what did we learn from the special counsel's investigation? Uh, well, settle in. I'm, I'm going to about to summarize all 448 uh, pages. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, no, I, I guess I'd just say this is, it, it, after two years, uh, this is our most extensive, fullest reporting yet about Russian efforts to disrupt the 2016 presidential election. And the report did say that it found no evidence that any U.S. person, as it put it, conspired with the Russia, uh, Russian disinformation campaign. Uh, but it also looked into uh, Russian hacking operations, and while it established numerous links between uh, people with ties to the Russian government and those associated with the Trump campaign, the evidence wasn't sufficient to bring any charges. Um, the, the report also noted, and I'll say it in their words, or in its words, uh, several individuals affiliated with the Trump campaign lied to the office and to Congress about their interactions with Russian-affiliated individuals and related matters, end quote. I think that's significant. Um, now, on, on, on collusion, the report makes clear the president tried to influence the obstruction investigation. Um, he wasn't happy about the appointment of the special counsel, and after firing James Coney, uh, Comey, um, he, as the report put it, um, engaged in public acts to attack the campaign and non-public acts to try to control it, as well as public and non-public efforts encouraging witnesses not to cooperate. Uh, but in its conclusion on this part, uh, the, uh, the special counsel said that uh, uh, while the report does not um, conclude the president committed a crime, uh, it does not exonerate him. Uh, and, you know, at over 448 pages, lots of details that I'm sure we're going to be absorbing for a long time to come. And, and it sounds like Congress uh, already is sort of gearing up to keep this investigation going. The House Judiciary Committee chairman is talking about subpoenas. Uh, I think and maybe he's already subpoenaed the full unredacted report, um, which, if I understood uh, Attorney General Barr correctly, he was planning to make that available to select congressional leaders. Um, but, uh, I mean, it sounds like we're not done with this. Uh, this is just a sort of the first <laughs> the first round, and, and Congress is taking over from here. So, Ed, uh, are we looking at um, impeachment? Uh, you know, Nancy Pelosi, the House Speaker, seems to have taken that off the table because, um, as she says, that there would be there would um, some Republicans would be required to go along with that, and that doesn't appear uh, to be politically feasible. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, this this is going to be talked about for a uh, for quite a long time. Uh, as you correctly note, there were redactions, and in 
you know, uh, as I was reading over some of the report uh, uh, last night, uh, you know, you'd get to a part and all of a sudden it would turn black and it was like somebody had turned off the movie projector. It's like, hey, I want to know more. Um, and and and, <laughs> and House Democrats will be uh, surely working overtime on the Oversight Committee uh, to try to get that material and, and then also to sort of work over all the details in the report and, and not to, you know, to be ignored, Republicans, um, majority Republicans on the Senate side will surely be using their investigative power uh, to investigate the uh, investigators. So, yeah, this is uh, contrary to the president's statement. Uh, this isn't over. So, Todd, now that we've, you know, agreed there's no collusion delusion, um, Will Congress get back to working on, say, oh, health care or the infrastructure and all those dull but important issues? Yeah, well, I, I suspect that there will still be some some working on issues alongside the investigating, the kind of the, the walking and chewing gum at the same time, I suppose. Uh, I mean, I think the first, you know, we're going to have the Attorney General going to Capitol Hill next month. He's obviously going to face a lot of questioning about, you know, how he's handled this, especially maybe his performance yesterday where he seemed more like the, the president's personal attorney than the, the attorney general. Uh, and then there's going to be a push to get Robert Mueller to testify before Congress. And, of course, that's going to be one of those, you know, big moments where someone is sworn in with, 500 camera clicks going off and all of the things that we've come to expect from those dramatic, you know, the dramatic testimony that since Watergate, I guess, is when we we started seeing those images. So, uh, yeah, I mean, there's going to be investigating, as, as Ed said, this isn't over. And, and there is, you know, contrary to what the president and the Republicans have sort of been saying, that this is exoneration and all of this is over and everybody that, you know, has been interested in following this should apologize for having followed it. It's it's there are there are lots of things to look at, and you know first and foremost I think aside from, you know this political battle and the effort to you know, uh, investigate the president is is you know looking at his findings on what the Russians did, and what does the United States have to do, going into the 2020 election to sort of thwart these efforts, and anticipate what the new efforts will be, and I. The Trump administration, parts of it have been serious about this. The president himself hasn't, but I think Congress will probably be interested in in figuring out what sort of policy changes or what sort of things need to be done to guard against this in the future. So, I mean, we you know we we have now a, a, a solid, detailed narrative on what happened, and I think that should that should guide some of that policy. Well, and some of the first reports uh, yesterday seemed to indicate that the Russian attempts uh, at hacking were uh, more extensive and perhaps more successful than uh, anyone has said in the past. I mean, the, the kind of a, the line in the past is, yes, they made attempts with sort of phishing, uh, you know, sending an email to election officials, secretaries of states, but they weren't successful. And some of the indications yesterday were that perhaps they were more successful than previously reported. So uh, I'm sure that a lot of secretaries of state will be uh, reading those parts of the report uh, very closely. The other, I think, question in my mind is sort of the political impact of this. Uh, you know, we're, what, a year and a few months away from another presidential election. Um, 
Does this help Trump? You know, total exoneration, although total has to have an asterisk by it, I guess. Um, or, or does this help Democrats portray him as a, a corrupt and uh, uh, president and somebody who really isn't fit for office? Well, James, I guess I'd just say, you know, I, you know, all things considered, Trump would be better off if this had never happened. Uh, but I think, you know, what you're seeing, obviously, I think what you're seeing now uh, and what you'll see into 2020 are efforts by the president and his allies to sort of mitigate this damage by sort of, you know, pushing the focus off onto uh, the investigators or the Obama administration, that sort of thing. But, I, you know, no doubt, I, I think it'll be a drag on, on his campaign, how much of a drag, you know, remains to be seen. At the same time, it seems like his base will look at this and say, yeah, it was a witch hunt, uh, you know, and, and, you know, probably strengthen their resolve uh, to, you know, support the president and protect him from more investigation and, and democratic attacks. So um, uh, it just seems like it's going to uh, make the polarized uh, nation even more polarized uh, on this issue. Yeah, I, thing, I, I mean, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, yeah, I, I, I suppose if we're polarized to uh, the ninth degree, you know, this will polarize us to the tenth degree. Um, you know, we're, we're already redlining pretty bad on that uh, on that score. Well, the, yeah. I, I would say, like, I, mean, I would it, say it's the, not the first time a president has lied to us, but I mean, it, it seems like here. Um, I, I, I don't know. Trump seems to have taken that to a, a new level, the, the lying to the public. And, and I mean, it's clear from the report that people lied and then changed their stories and tried to explain why they lied in the first place and why they changed their stories. So, um, I mean, it, it's it's going to make for some good reading, uh, maybe not beach reading, but uh, over the next few months. I think a lot, a lot of folks are going to be interested in, in, in you know, kind of maybe not all 448 pages, but, uh, you know, when you take the redactions out, it's, it, it's not that long. Todd, you were, you had something. Oh, I was, I was going to say that, I mean, you know, for Democrats, and we talked about the, the Trump supporters and the Trump base. Uh, I'm not sure what would have convinced some of his supporters that he had done something wrong, but uh, I mean, for the other side, I mean, a lot of this stuff is now no longer just the media and its sources <coughs> saying something. It's no longer, anonymous sources leaking things. It's no longer just a news story that you can believe or not believe. I mean, it's it's an investigative report now that was done over two years exhaustively by real law enforcement people and and lawyers with experience doing these things. So these allegations, the, 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 the things that the president did, uh, the lies that were told, they're now documented and, 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 and sourced and, and uh, substantiated. So I think that changes things to some extent as to, you know, for, for maybe some folks in the middle who weren't sure who to, who to believe. I mean, this is, I mean, there's, there's a lot more evidence that the president did the things that were reported now than perhaps they were when they were reported. James. Good point. This is Brett. Yeah. This is Brett. Yeah, I, I want to kind of, I wanted to add that and kind of what Todd was saying, just, I guess, go slightly more of it. Um, in the era, you know, it's just everything's fake news, fake news. I guess I want to stand up for our profession. And and what the report, you know, showed out was that so much of the reporting that was, you know, derided as fake news all the way through, you know, you know week after week after week was, was you know, 
a, a huge amount of it was was proven to be true and, and factual. So reporters did their work, and you know they were dogged, and they you know they they turned out stories that were were factual in spite of all the the roadblocks that were being thrown up by the by the administration. And I think that's notable for people to remember. Yeah, I think that's important um, that the, the fake news turned out to be true, and and the people who were that's fake news were, were, I guess, the fakers here. They were the ones uh, lying to the media, and, and that's a good point, Brett. Well, moving on here, it probably doesn't rank up there with the, the Mueller investigation report, but uh, Representative Dave Wilbsack dropped a, a mini bombshell a week ago when he announced that he was retiring. Uh, I don't think it came as a complete surprise. He had said he didn't plan to be a lifer in Congress, but uh, he announced that he wouldn't seek re-election in 2020. Um, he said he wanted to announce his plans early enough to give people interested in running to be a successor time to organize their campaigns. And Todd, uh, before we look at who some of those successor wannabes are, um, how will we remember Dave Loebsack's time in Congress? Or will we? Yeah, I, I think we'll. I think we'll remember. I think we'll, he was he was there long enough. I think we'll, uh, you know, remember that he was there. Uh, you know, you know, is there is there like a big Loebsack act that we can point to as a major, you know, legislative accomplishments? Maybe not, but I think he was a, a you know a steady presence in Congress. He he did you know he was he was visible in his district. He was at a lot of the the public events you would go to. You would see Dave Lo Loebsack there interacting with his constituents. Uh, he did. He did, by all accounts, good work for those constituents. Uh, you know, here in Cedar Rapids, even though after redistricting he had to to move to Iowa City to 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 the second district, he had uh, represented Cedar Rapids during the flood. And uh, you know, even after he wasn't representing Cedar Rapids, he he did work trying to get recovery and relief funds, flood wall funds. He was active on those endeavors, and and so I think you know he'll be remembered as someone who. Who stuck up for uh, veterans and and low-income people in his in his district? I think we've all heard him tell the story of his own upbringing, from from sort of humble beginnings. So, uh, yeah, I think he was a he was a senator, or I'm sorry, not a senator. <laughs> um, maybe maybe is he going to run against Grassley? Am I am I putting out a trial balloon here? No, I don't think so. But uh, <laughs> so, but I think he'll be remembered as someone who who served his constituents in his district. Uh, looked out for their issues and, uh, you know, worked hard to, to make sure that those issues got addressed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he, he seems like the sort of member of Congress who, whether you agree with him or not, at least he um, knew how to do the job. Uh, like you talked about, Todd, uh, constituent service, meeting with his constituents. Um, you know, I'm not sure there's a fire hall in the second district that he hasn't visited, but uh, he was out, you know, his coffee with the congressman and those sorts of things. He certainly was visible and accessible uh, to the district. And uh, looking ahead, uh, it, it's likely going to be a lively race to succeed Loebsack. Um, this is a district that uh, has, you know, appears reliably blue or Democratic, but uh, favored Trump in the last election. So, Ed, um, who are some of the names being floated, at least from the Quad Cities end of the district? Are you hearing some names of people who are serious about running? 
Oh, yeah. Um, lots of people are interested. I mean, you're, I, I think this is going to be a, a Donnybrook on, on both sides of the uh, aisle. Um, for the Democrats, Rita Hart, uh, the former state senator who was on Fred Hubble's gubernatorial ticket last year from Clinton County, she's been mentioned. There's an attorney in Davenport, Ian Russell, who's, uh, who's considering it. Um, there, there could be others on the Democratic side from here, and surely there are uh, uh, Democrats uh, from uh, Iowa City, Johnson County area. Uh, I think you guys will probably talk about them later. Um, from, from this area, though, on the Republican side, there are state senators Robbie Smith and Chris Knoyer, who was uh, just elected last year. Um, they're from the Quad Cities. Um, they could run without giving up their seats. Um, you know, State Senator Marionette Miller-Meeks, who ran twice against Loebsack, Chris Peters, who ran against Loebsack, um, you know, Mar uh, Marionette Miller-Meeks from the Ottumwa area, Peters from the Iowa City area, um, also um, likely to give it some thought. Uh, the Kaufmans, uh, Bobby Kaufman and his father, Jeff Kaufman. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't that be interesting? I have to see the Father both. Father-son team. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I wonder what they might say uh, about each other in a primary contest. Please let it happen. <laughs> uh, <laughs> But, uh, you know, Jeff Kaufman um, heads the state GOP. He's got a lot of name recognition, been very loyal to the president. I, I, I have to say I have no idea what he said about this, but he would be an interesting candidate. Um, you know, I, I just closed by saying, you know, uh, our colleague Aaron Murphy tweeted in the hours after Loebsack's announcement, can you name the least interesting congressional race in, in Iowa for 2020? And I think it's a darn good question. Yeah, they're, they're going to be exciting. Ed, uh, you can help me with the name on this, I'm sure. There's uh, a former Illinois congressman who lives in the 2nd District now. It's like a one-term congressman. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. I, I, I should have mentioned uh, Bobby Schilling uh, represented uh, the 17th District in, uh, uh, in Illinois uh, for two years from 2010 to 2012. He was defeated by Sherry Bustos in 2012, um, but represented the Illinois side of the Quad Cities. Uh, he actually moved to the Iowa side um, not too long ago, maybe a year or so, something like that. might have been a couple of years. Uh, and, and I've heard that uh, he's somebody that uh, we should keep an eye on. So, you know, uh, as I say, um, could be a Donnybrook. Todd, the, the Democratic stronghold of Johnson County is going to have to, something to say about this race, probably the primary as well. Um, who, whose names are being floated in that area? Well, first I want to say the prospect for a, a two-Bobby primary. I mean, that, that sounds like a NASCAR race, not a, not a Republican <laughs> primary. But, <laughs> so, but, yes, over here in, in, over in Johnson County, well, I think the first uh, name that sort of leapt to mind for some people was Zach Walls, who's a first-term state senator, rising star in the Democratic Party. I think he generated some excitement in the Senate race, and so that was a name that came up. Uh, but he, of course, I think mentioned on Twitter that if Rita Hart runs, that he would, that he would uh, support her in the race. Uh, Kevin Kinney, state senator from, uh, who represents part of Johnson County, has talked about running. Uh, he... He's uh, comes from a rural background, which might be an advantage. So does so does Rita Hart, and I've heard uh, the name uh, Iowa City businesswoman. Uh, let's see, Veronica Tesler, who I think is of Utop Utopia frozen yogurt fame, might might enter the race. So those are the three names that have been batted around. And I'm sure that's that's probably only the beginning. Yeah, I mean, open seat race like this, I would expect a lot of people to at least. Uh, 
sort of float trial balloons or dip their toe in the water and, and see what the reaction is. And, and I mean, why not? Uh, it's an open seat race. You may as well. These things, these opportunities don't come around very often. Uh, so I think uh, you're right that this is going to be a, a Donnie book probably on both sides. Uh, I don't get the impression that either party wants to sort of pick a candidate and to avoid a primary, and, and I'm not sure that would be possible uh, for the party to control that this this time. I, I, for Democrats, I guess they, there are still memories of that uh, senatorial primary that uh, Bruce Braley won and did so well. So uh, I, I, I doubt the party's going to follow that uh, uh, game plan in this situation. Meanwhile, uh, folks who are in congressional offices are raising money, and folks who want to be in congressional office are raising money. Um, Brett, let's start with the 4th District, where Representative Steve King's campaign finance report didn't look too good, especially for an incumbent. Uh, it's not unusual for him to trail opponents early in the fundraise, fundraising race, but um, it looks like uh, he's deficit spending at this point. Right, that, that's a good perspective historically, I guess. So back in 2012, um, Christy Vilsack came out initially with you know much more fundraising. That happened with Jim Maurer in 2014 as well. And you're right, he's, King isn't always a you know a high raiser of funds. And um, and yeah, and you're right as well that he was deficit spending um, for at least for the first three months of this quarter. He raised uh, 62,000. And he spent sixty-nine thousand, so he ended the quarter um, with eighteen thousand, a little over eighteen thousand, which is you know incredibly small dollar figure for a seventeen-year congressman. And uh, I guess I don't know, it's it's worth remembering. I would say that um, when King was stripped of his um, House committees, at, you know, in January, he put out fundraising appeals to stand up to the Republican hierarchy and and you know sought to use that to to ring in money. And and you can't really say that that those appeals resulted in a deluge with um, you know, six, 62,000 for the period. So um, so where, where we stand is Feenstra. He's a state senator. I'm sorry, Randy Feenstra. He's a state senator from Hall. Um, he first to jump in the race as a challenger for King right away in January. He raised $260,000 for the quarter. Um, again, that compares to King, 62000 And then a third person in the race is uh, Jeremy Taylor. He's a former state legislator from Sioux City. And then the fourth is Brett Richards. He's uh, down in the southern tier of the of the fourth district. He raised seventeen thousand. So Feenster was able to to draw four times as much as King. And when you look, as you mentioned, cash on hand, Feenster had thirteen times the the comparison of cash for King. So um, again, this is all notable. Why we talk about this is we're always looking for ways to assess how. How these fields are playing out. Um, you know, we have a very interesting primary here in the fourth, and you know, we don't have any polling, so for now, we dig into these campaign finance reports. Mm -hmm. Did uh, JD Shulton file a campaign finance report? No, he, he's not. He okay. has not made a decision on what, what he's doing. Right. Okay. All right. Um, and, and as you said, there's no polling, so we kind of look at the, the invisible primary, the money primary. Um, it, it's too soon to call this over and declare the primary over, isn't it? Well, I mean, sure, yeah. But, I mean, right, right. I mean, but a key, a key piece to, to throw in there is that um, 
that has to be concerning for, for Steve King is um, Terry Branstad. And one of the donations that Feenstra got was $1,000 from Terry Branstad, who, the former governor who's, you know, <laughs> essentially beloved by, by Republicans. Um, so Branstad has signaled that he supports an alternative. Um, so that's a lead that maybe others are willing to follow. And um, it's, uh, I think, another concerning aspect for King is this looks like it's going to be a primary, unlike 2016, um, State Senator Rick Burkhan from Sioux City ran against King that time. He came late, in the, like a year later. He didn't, it was like February, March of that, like, you know, only six months to the election, seven months to the election. So he came in. But all the all the GOP hierarchy lined up behind King in that one. And this doesn't look to be the case. You have Terry Branstad, who's willing to give money to um, to Feenstra, and so far, a lot, it seems like Ernst and others are saying, uh, well, well let, you know, we're going to have an open field, and, you know, that's distinctly different. So, and, but again, the one thing we talked about also, again, is, is the mass. Um, one thing that could play to King's, King's advantage is the more candidates, the better. Um, because one, one way of looking at it, if there's, if there remains to be three, and again, we don't know how many people will be on the ballot when we get to next June. Um, so we're more than a year away from that. But once we get to there, if there's a lot of um, three, four candidates still on the ballot, then the anti-King vote could be split, so to speak, and then King more readily could win the primary. I'm wondering, uh, Brett, has uh, King attacked Feenstra for taking money from China based on that Branstead uh, donation? <laughs> I did not see that, no. <laughs> <laughs> Across the state, uh, in the first district, we have a freshman congresswoman who raised a lot of money in the 2018 cycle. And Thomas, I wanted to ask you, uh, are her numbers uh, in the first quarter still impressive? Yes. Um, I, I feel raising over 400, almost $400,000 so far since the uh, end of the election is pretty is pretty impressive just on its own and certainly um her district might be i think prior to lobsack her district was looked at as one of the most um uh you know ones that could easily be taken back by republicans but i think with uh, the showing of the of the fundraising so far it might be not as easy as uh, republicans would have hoped is that money coming uh, in big numbers, or is it the small donations, or have you had a chance to look at it that closely? It's a little bit of a combination of, the, of uh, both from what I was able to see. I mean, you know, little donations, there's a, it's, a, it's a combination of small and big donations all kind of coming from all around. So to, okay. similar to kind of how she got during, uh, how she raised during the first, during her campaign uh, last year. And uh, former Congressman Rod Blum, Republican who uh, Finkenauer defeated, um, has been out talking to some Republican groups. Is he uh, planning a comeback? Well, he hasn't raised money for a comeback. So far, he only has about okay. $600 he raised, but he's putting money into seemingly something that could be a comeback, and, uh, and he might be considering ones. Uh, he has he put about 11 thousand uh, dollars into polling and then he also and then about a hundred dollars into advertising um since the elect you know since uh since uh, 2018 and it seems as though especially from the way that he's kind of handling his social media that he might actually be 
consider, um, you know, consider probably running again, or at least uh, trying at the very least, uh, if he, unless he's primary by someone. Or maybe he's just having a hard time giving it up after a couple terms in Congress. He's slow to withdrawal. Yeah. And uh, otherwise, no Republican has declared him first and is raising money, are they? Not that I've been able to talk. I haven't seen, uh, none that's come to my attention yet, no. Okay. All right. Well, I'm sure that Republicans will see this as the best opportunity, you know, when to take on a, a freshman. And Congresswoman, uh, their best opportunity to defeat her and win back that seat. Um, and that's something we'll talk about on a future edition of On Iowa Politics. I hope this one has been worth your time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, tell a friend and subscribe to us on iTunes or Stitcher. Fan mail may be sent to oniowapolitics at gmail.com. And you can find us every week on the home pages of the Quad City Times, Sioux City Journal, Muscatine Journal, Nation City Globe Gazette, Waterloo, Cedar Falls Courier, and the Cedar Rapids Gazette. Scarlet Beans will take us out. If you know a band or talented Iowa musician who should be on our show, send us a sound file. And remember to follow us on Twitter and subscribe to On Iowa Politics on iTunes and Stitcher. For Thomas, Ed, Brett, Todd, and our producer, Stephen, I'm James Lynch. Happy Easter. Jacob, no.